Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. This episode was recorded while on the road, and you know what that means. Imperfect sound, imperfect technology, but still that perfect, health-consciously prepared brain food. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where we will be philosophically speaking about morality and things that matter. My first guest is Alan Buchanan. Alan Edward Buchanan, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Arizona and also professor of the philosophy of international law at the Dixon Poon School of Law at King's College, London. He received his PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1975 and now researches at the University of Arizona. We're talking about his book, Our Moral Fate, Evolution and the Escape from Tribalism. Welcome, Professor Buchanan. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, this is this is a big subject and one that I think we've probably explored in roundabout ways in the last couple of years or the maybe the last few years. But I want to tackle this head on because let's first of all define what you mean by tribalism. Okay, I think we can begin by saying what tribalism is not. It's not the same as polarization. You hear a lot about polarization. Well, as I understand it, polarization just means that, say, you and I have serious disagreements on social and political matters. But that's not tribalism. Tribalism isn't just disagreement. It's a matter of regarding the person you disagree with as the other and denigrating and even demonizing them and not listening to them, holding them in contempt. Yeah. That's by tribalism. And tribalism really involves what I call sorting and signaling. You sort the world into us versus them. You treat all of them as if they're exactly alike. There's no differences among them. And you signal your allegiance to your own tribe and your, the fact that you're not part of this other group. And so what looks like real conversation, argument, really isn't at all. It's just sorting and signaling. Which is a very like a primal kind of of response that we have to one another. Of course it is. You know, that, that's an interesting point. From an evolutionary standpoint, you can understand why humans are groupish beings and why it's very important for them to sort the world into us versus them. I mean, think about the conditions under which the moral mind was formed by the forces of evolution, perhaps 450,000 or more years ago, there are widely scattered, very small groups of hunter-gatherer human beings. And if you're out on the savanna and you encounter another human being, the first thing you want to know is whether it's one of us or one of them. Right. And people evolve ways of, of determining this by distinctive headdress, paint and coloration on the body, and of course, language differences. But you want to know whether that creature is one of us or one of them, because your life may depend upon it under those conditions. Now, those are the conditions in which our moral mind was formed. And so we, we have a kind of what I call a kind of Pleistocene hangover. There's still vestiges of, of adaptations that were really quite valuable in that early, harsh, peculiar environment, but they've stuck with us. And they can sometimes play out in very damaging ways under modern conditions. In fact, I think tribalism is destroying democracy in this country. Thank you for saying that, because this is something that 
there have been conversations within my household and within friends, friend groups talking about this. And I would love for you to share how tribalism plays out in our government, in the political system, and how it places democracy at risk. Well, the first thing is that it's an element of the tribal mentality to think that every political issue is related to every other political issue and that the political division is a life or death matter, that we're in a kind of supreme emergency. I mean, I'm thinking of the title of Sean Hannity's latest book. It's entitled Live Free or Die, America (laughs) on Rank. Okay. Now, if you can convince yourself or other people that you're in a kind of supreme emergency, then you're ready to suspend the normal moral rules. That's the first consequence. And then you get a kind of race toward the bottom. In other words, tribalism involves viewing everything as a zero-sum game for the highest stakes. What my group wins, you lose. There's no common interest. There's no mutual benefit possible. And this is the death of democracy, because in democracy, you have to be willing to bargain and compromise and meet people in the middle and look for a common interest. But if you start out with the assumption that we're just inevitably opposed enemies and that everything is for the highest stakes, you can't get bargaining and compromise. And of course, you can't get bargaining and compromise if you don't listen to the other. If instead you just dismiss them as either being incredibly stupid or as being incredibly insincere. And let me give you a couple of concrete examples of this, okay? Have you ever heard the term libtard, L-I-B-T-A-R-D? I have heard the, the word libtard. Well, Maybe I'm one of them. I don't know. <laughs> well, I've been called one. It's just a matter of labeling a whole group of people as if they were all the same, namely liberals, and saying basically that they're mentally deficient. Well, if they're really seriously mentally deficient, there's really no point in trying to talk to them as an adult. Now, that's one strategy. The other strategy is to say, well, maybe they're not mentally deficient, but they're just incredibly insincere and morally corrupt. And here's an example of that. Okay, Uh, The late Rush Limbaugh used to repeatedly say that Democrats and liberals don't really care about migrants They just want to let them in because they know they'll vote Democratic. Now, this is a very (laughs) preposterous. (laughs) It means that you don't have to engage with any of the substantive issues about immigration. Instead, you just brand the people who hold a different view on immigration from you as being totally insincere, as not meaning the word they say. So it's always a matter of attacking the character of the speaker rather than listening to the of the speech. Yes. Yes. Here's, here's an example from the left, okay? This happens all too frequently on American college campuses. There'll be an announcement that somebody's going to be a speaker, some lecturer's coming in. And then there's a movement by some students to prevent the person from speaking. Okay. The, an example of this recently was there was a professor of geophysics who was coming to give a talk on geophysics uh, to, to MIT. And someone found out that on social media, he had posted something which called into question whether affirmative action was really working very well. Well, because of that, he was banned from speaking on a geophysical topic at MIT. So the idea was, because we put this guy in the box of being a racist, right? We sorted him to be a racist because he has some doubts about whether affirmative action is working. Then... He doesn't have the privilege of speaking in public at our university. Again, it's always a matter of attacking the person rather than what they're saying. And it's very convenient because then you don't have to to really engage in the hard work of critical thinking and argumentation. Well, yes, there's the abdication of agency. Right. That I'm no longer in charge of my life. Right. I I am just I'm I'm a member of that tribe or that club. And therefore, this is how it's done. You know, that's is really important. What you just said about giving up your agency. The, The way I would frame it is that tribalism is the death of individuality in two different ways. For one thing, when you sort people into the other 
you homogenize. You say they're all the same. You deny the individuality of the members of that group, whether they're liberals or conservatives. You just treat them all alike. And that's really an insult. That's disrespectful because within any political grouping, whether it's liberals or conservatives, libertarians, progressive, social democrats, whatever, there are always differences of opinion. But in fact, in the tribalistic mode, you deny all of that. So you deny the individuality. You treat the other as a bunch of sheep. But then again, you act like a sheep with respect to your own group, too, because if you express any disagreement with the prevalent view in your group, you may be branded as a traitor. You may be expelled from the group and regarded as one of them, as the other. And so it represses your individuality and it leads you to deny the individuality of the other. And I think this is incredibly disrespectful. I mean, part of what it is to be respectful of human beings is to recognize that they are individuals, that they're unique, that they have their own views. And it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. If you act like a sheep and treat the other as a bunch of mindless, robotic, totally homogeneous sheep, then that's the way things will operate. Let's take a pause. And when we come back, we're going to continue this wonderful conversation that I'm really enjoying with you. My guest today is Professor Alan Buchanan. To learn more about his work and our moral fate, evolution, and the escape from tribalism, please go to the University of Arizona Department of Philosophy and check out Professor Alan Buchanan. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Hang on, before we take that break, I want to talk about the happiness of good hair days. Let's face it, there is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all solution for fabulous hair. One product that works well for curls might make fine hair limp and dull, and so on and so on. And if hormonal changes are giving you bad hair days, join the club. But thanks to my personalized Pros hair care routine, I am one happy camper with great hair. Pros makes custom hair care that is personalized and super effective by using natural ingredients tailored to your needs with proven results. First off, Pros starts with an easy-peasy online consultation that asks real-world lifestyle questions about your daily habits, like eating, exercise, life stressors, hair care routine, and more. Pros even asked me about where I live to learn about things like weather and humidity. Next up, Pros analyzed all of my answers and determined a unique hair care prescription of products to match my hair and scalp, plus goals for lovelier locks. All Pro's products are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. My custom blended hair care plan includes a pre-shampoo mask, shampoo, conditioner, and root source hair supplements designed to give me fuller, stronger, shinier, and happier hair. And if you're not 100% positive, Pro's is the best hair care you've had. They will take the products back, no questions asked. Pretty impressive, eh? Pro's is a carbon-neutral certified B Corporation and an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty products. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash happiness. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash happiness for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. Now let's take that pause. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. This episode was recorded while on the road, and you know what that means. Imperfect sound, imperfect technology, but still that perfect, health-consciously prepared brain food. And we're back, continuing the conversation, philosophically speaking, about morality and things that matter. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest, Alan Buchanan. Professor, before the break, we were talking about defining really what tribalism is and how it puts people in that state of you're not like me and therefore you are a discounted person and not worthy of my attention or my time. And I want to talk about what drives that, the underlying emotion that drives us apart like this? I think there are really two emotions. One is positive and the other is negative. 
One is just our desire to belong, right? And to have a group identity. We're groupish beings. And there's an story that explains that. That in itself is not bad. But the other is fear. The other motivation is fear. I think often we have demagogues who are very good at creating fear in people and then directing the fear toward the other, that is making the other the the source, the target of the fear. Now, look, in in our world, there there are lots of reasons to be fearful or anxious. The the pace of social change is incredible. It's a new world every day when you wake up and people are being dislocated because of changes in the global economy. There are huge changes in our understanding of gender, of our understanding of family, of sexuality. You know, the ground is shifting beneath our feet. And some people are much less comfortable with that than others. Some people have tremendous anxiety about change. And in some cases, it's perfectly understandable. I mean, if you're a a, a middle-aged white male, you've been working in manufacturing all your life, you lose your job because of changing global economy, now the goods are being produced in China, then you lose wealth, you lose status, you lose your sense of, of who you are. And also, let's face it, uh, all of the things that you and I regard as progressive, probably like the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement, they create losers. They they diminish the status of some people and make them insecure. Now, when there's all of this insecurity and fear out there, it's very, the situation is ripe for someone to come along and say, I feel your pain and I know who's causing it. It's those people. Right. Side with me and you'll be safe. That's right. This is exactly the way it works. And fear is an incredibly powerful human motivator. And listen, there's a kind of stock set of words and images that demagogues have used to create fear in people and direct hostility toward another group. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there's a horrible propaganda film by Joseph Goebbels called The Eternal Jew. And it begins with a shot of thousands of rats swarming out of the hold of a, of a ship. Okay. Now, this is one of the, the metaphors that's used to generate genocidal motivation. That is looking at the other as like a bearer of, of infectious disease. Yes, vermin. Okay. <laughs> vermin. Right. Now, look, yeah. this happened on Fox and Friends about two years ago. One of the talking heads said that the caravan of people coming from Central America trying to cross the southern border was carrying smallpox. Now, look, I remember that. I actually remember that. The last recorded case of smallpox, a single case, was in 1970 in Somalia. In 1977, the World Health Organization proclaimed that smallpox no longer existed on planet Earth, with the possible exception of some bioweapons lab, right? Right. So the faith that these people were carrying smallpox, completely unfounded, but it's exactly the stock and trade of tribalism to say that. Okay. The other is presented as a parasite, as a dangerous, infectious agent, either literally bringing diseases, or they're going to be parasites feeding on our welfare system taking jobs away from from us, et cetera. So those images of of the other as a a disease-carrying rodent or vermin, an infectious agent, these are primal images that still work to evoke fear and hostility. Let's pivot for a second, if we can, over to this moral hygiene makeover. And I just made that up. But like, what are some things that we can do as humans, as solid citizens, as caring people who believe, and I like to believe that there are a lot of us out there that believe that the values and the wants and desires of the other matter just as much as my own. What can we do? How can we help turn this tide? Well, I think there are two different pathways. And one of them is just as an individual to be skeptical and to try not to immerse yourself in a group. Now, one way you can do this is by avoiding the echo chamber effect 
of the internet, right? The echo chamber effect has been documented in psychological studies. What happens is that if people just listen to other people who hold the same political views, all of their views become more and more extreme over time. If they're like a a sealed chamber and when you say something, it echoes, it becomes louder and louder and louder. (laughs) People do this. They seek out on the internet only those sources of, quote, information that already resonate with the beliefs that they have. The technical name for this is confirmation bias, okay? You hold a certain view and you only look for evidence that seems to support it and you systematically avoid evidence that goes against it, okay? So you can try to be more open-minded by looking at different sources of information and you can also stop and ask yourself, well, wait a minute, Am I lumping everybody together? Am I saying that, you know, all Trump supporters are white supremacists? Or on the other side, am I saying that all liberals are communist in disguise? You can do that. (laughs) Okay, I I was I have a a second home in the mountains of of Arizona, and I was uh, introduced to somebody right before the election. And he said, uh, you know, if Biden wins, they're going to turn this into a communist country. Now, it wasn't clear to me that he knew what communism was, but what he was doing was he was sort of feeling me out. He was seeing my my reaction. He was sending a signal of which tribe he belonged to. Yes. Let me give you another example of this. Okay, And if your gun was loaded in your truck, you know. (laughs) And the thing is, tribalism is totalizing. It makes everything political. Think about mask wearing. Okay, I was I was in my neighborhood here in Tucson a few months ago, and I uh, stepped out the door, and I, I I had a mask on because I had just just driven home from the university. I just hadn't taken it off yet, and a neighbor looked at me and said, "Oh, I see you voted for Biden." What? Yeah, he <laughs> thought because I was wearing a mask, it means that I was voting for Biden. So that was your dog whistle. <laughs> It becomes a tribal issue. Everything becomes political, even mask wearing. Things that should just be completely neutral as to your political standpoint, like basic public health measures, now become partisan issues. There's a sense in which tribalism just invades every part of life. It used to be that we had this idea that, well, there's the political sphere and then there are other spheres, right? Now everything is the political sphere. Yeah, yeah. You said during the break, you know, you mentioned that in some cases this divides families, right? Yeah, in my case, it's, it, divide, it, it's divided my family. Yep, that's true. It's my family, it's, it ruins friendships, it divides families, and there's no escape from it because anything you say, something that may be perfectly innocent and non-political will be interpreted in a, in a divisively political way. It's really taking over our lives. We don't realize it, but it's, it's just really distorting everything and it's dominating us. I mean, we're becoming slaves to this tribalistic mentality. Which for me, like from my perspective, I say that, you know, that sort of, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. Like, where, where does this go? Where is this now in, in our, in our world? Only love thy neighbor if thy neighbor is part of your tribe, a member of that tribe and the other ones, you know, can go bang sand. I mean, I, I don't understand it. Well, you know, part of it is the, the, this, if the fear becomes so great and people think that we're in a kind of supreme emergency that, you know, the fate of the world or the fate of the oh, country. Yeah. They're coming for us. And some of my family believes that they're coming for us. I say, who's the they? Oh, yeah. I didn't get get the memo. Who is the they? (laughs) That's the supreme emergency framing. And when you all the regular moral rules go out the window, let me come back to your question. I sort of diverged a little bit. You said, what can we do about this? And I think one thing is that we can sort of practice a little better uh, belief management in our own case by avoiding the echo chamber effect. And by actually trying to listen to people and not constantly just impugning the character of people we disagree with and evading the question of getting down to argument about substantive disagreements. That's one thing you use individuals. But I think it's going to take some institutional changes to try to restore democracy. And here are just a few very simple suggestions. Okay, we need more than two main parties. Yeah, I agree with that. 
Because yeah. what happens now is you've got to choose one whole bundle or the other whole bundle. And I find a lot of the stuff in both of the bundles repugnant. But I've got to choose one bundle or the other because we right, have so, so, the less party. evil of the bundles. Yeah. <laughs> you have to sort of hold your nose, right? And go for one bundle or the other. I think if we had more than than one party, we could have more nuanced views and people wouldn't be faced with a choice of one extreme or the other. Now, another thing, another institutional change might be switching to a system of proportional representation. So in, in elections, it's not just winner take all. It's that you have a, you know, a group of people who become the legislators or, or members of a cabinet or whatever in proportion to the number of votes they got, not just, you know, winner take all first past the post like we have now. And that again would allow for more diversity of views and, and it wouldn't put people in a position of choosing one big bundle or the other. Another possibility would be to use a supermajority requirement in voting for some decisions. Because if you have a supermajority requirement, what it means is that uh, the people who might win if it was just a bare majority of all at stake, uh, they're no longer able to just ignore the other people. They have to recruit a certain number of people from the other side in order to get a supermajority, like two-thirds or three-quarters. And that means they have to listen to them. They have to respond to their needs and interests. They have to bargain and compromise. So those are just some institutional changes. But I think, again, it's going to have to be a combination of changes in individual behavior and institutional changes. And from the standpoint of individual behavior, you've just got to recover your agency and you've got to turn your critical thinking device back on. You know, it's as if we've been anesthetized in that part of our brain. It's, or, it's, or to use a computer analogy, our, our critical thinking has been unplugged, disconnected, and we've got to reactivate it. And we've got to just try to put ourselves in the position of the people we disagree with and say, well, maybe just possibly, is there something to what they're saying? Is there some validity? See, the other thing about tribalism is the absolute certainty. A certainty that you, your group is right, and the, your group is totally right, and the other group is totally wrong. We are out of time, but maybe we can hang out again and talk more about this because you've got me fired up, and I hope our listeners are fired up, and I know you're fired up because you told me so. <laughs> I was already fired up, but you, in, in, you increased the intensity of the flame. Yeah, because this is happiness. You know, to be to be able to talk about this stuff and question each other and listen to each other. This is what creates a happy society. You know, it's like, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Most people would say, I want both. But when it comes right down to it and you have to pick one or the other, people want to be happy. You know, let me add one last thing on that note. And that is, I'm afraid that a lot of people have become addicted to rage. Yeah. Well, it's a drug, right? rage against the other. And that's not going to make them happy. No. Well, it gets them in a state of instant gratification, right? Because you have all this physiological release of hormones, right? In the body that make you feel good in your own skin temporarily. Yeah. But it's like an addictive drug, right? Yes. 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 Rarely, but it crowds out all of the other more enduring, more wholesome forms of enjoyment and happiness. That's the problem with it. Compassion, empathy, yeah. kindness, humor, yeah. curiosity, you yeah. know, exactly. ordinary courage. Right. You um, know, and maybe that's part of the call to action to have some ordinary courage to think for ourselves and ask a lot of questions to people we don't know. Yeah. Imagine, imagine that. <laughs> we got a dash. Professor Alan Buchanan, thank you for sharing your work, your book, Our Moral Fate, Evolution and the Escape from Tribalism. To connect with Professor Buchanan, please go to the University of Arizona Department of Philosophy, check him out, look him up, and just come back again, because I love these kinds of conversations. I would love to come back. Yes, we'll do that. We'll get producer Andrea on it. All right. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, 
parents and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Philosophically speaking about morality and things that matter, my next guest is Simon Critchley. Simon Critchley is the Hans Jonas Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research and the moderator of the New York Times Stone Column. He is the author or editor of many books, including the recent book, Tragedy, the Greeks and Us, a novella, Memory Theater, a book-length essay, Notes on Suicide, and studies of David Bowie and association football. The book we're talking about today is Bald, 35 Philosophical Shortcuts. Simon, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you very much, Lisa. Nice uh, to be here. Well, I, I, I shared with you prior to starting that I was walking through the airport the other day and I saw your book and I had made a note to self to uh, reach out to Andrea to say, go get this guy. And I was so <laughs> delighted <laughs> that this guy is here. So Yeah, I, I am, yeah. <laughs> it's very nice to be here. <laughs> I'm amazed that you saw the book in an airport. That's, uh, that makes me very happy. Yeah, it, most definitely. And we are in dire need of some good contemporary philosophy these days to make sense out of the chaos of the mm -hmm. last several years. What is philosophy anyway, and why do we need it? Oh, I think philosophy is one way of defining it is that um, there's no agreement about the nature of philosophy and no agreement about any of the the key issues that we talk about. So philosophy is just defined by questions about what it is. And in a sense, <laughs> philosophers have been asking the question, what is philosophy for 3,000 years in different places? And uh, yeah, there are different ways of answering it. Love of wisdom is the most obvious way because that's what the word means in Greek. Philosophia is love of wisdom. So, and there's a lot packed into that actually, but that's uh, the easiest way of defining it. Love of wisdom. Yeah, love of wisdom or pondering the nature of human existence, maybe? Yeah, it can be that too. It can be, um, I mean, really it's the the question, I mean, philosophers deal with the questions that don't really, uh, that nag at us and uh, which we can't really resolve. Um, and philosophy is also, I mean, this is something I say, yeah, in the book, the first piece I did for the the stone was called um, What is a Philosopher? Rather than What is Philosophy? What is a Philosopher? And um you know, because Socrates tells different stories. So philosophy is also about storytelling. And one story he tells is about um, the, the philosopher Thales, who fell into a ditch. Right? And he fell into a ditch and a serving girl was described as laughing at him. So philosophy begins with somebody falling into a ditch and someone laughing at that person who's fallen into a ditch. So it begins in kind of comedy. It begins, so the philosopher, in an important way, is a kind of a, a fool Right, rather than being a an expert, philosophers are philosophers are not experts. That'd be one way of describing it. So if you listen to you know the radio or read newspapers or whatever or watch TV, then it's full of experts. We're in a sense uh, lifelong amateurs who are driven by a kind of interest in things, which uh, we we spend years trying to ponder and figure out, and um, and it also means being being a little bit like a fool and a bit like a child, actually, in terms of asking irritating, nagging questions. It's also why kids are very good philosophers, of natural philosophers, like they're natural drawers, you know. They'll draw these amazing things when they're four or five years old, and when they're maybe a tiny bit older than that, they'll start asking really deep, searching questions. Uh, for example, when they realize at some point that their parents are going to die, this this often happens with, uh, with with parents, and then and then the kid has to figure out well what does that mean, and in a sense, being a philosopher is seeing things with an almost childlike naivety and curiosity, and not believing that there's some specialist or expert that's going to be able to answer it. It's um, there are open questions, and there are more open questions than one can begin to ponder in a lifetime. I have a question for you. Yes. And that is, 
your story of the Liverpool Football Club. Oh, yeah. Because I think that will give our listeners a glimpse into what we're talking about. Oh, right. Well, um, yes, I'm happy to do that. And actually, if you could see me on video, I'm wearing a Liverpool Football Club top. My family are from Liverpool. Um, everybody, my family was from Liverpool. My grandmother supported the team Liverpool Football Club and on her grave, um, our gravestone, I only realized this was odd. Uh, about 10 years ago, I photographed my grandmother's grave to send to a friend and they said, is that a Liverpool club crest on her grave? <laughs> like, of course it is. I mean, who do you think she was supported? And my father used to train at Anfield in Liverpool. He was a pretty good soccer player and then an injury and then lost his job and then ended up coming down south. And I, you know, from the age of, I don't know, two, three years old, I uh, was supporting Liverpool. And so it's the, in many, and, and I have a son who's 28, uh, who is a, a passionate, a lifelong supporter of Liverpool because he had no choice. I forced him into <laughs> supporting Liverpool. And um, so that, if you think about that, that that's a hundred odd years of, it's actually more than a hundred years, 120 years of, um, just in one Joy little family. Pain. Yeah, of, of supporting one team. So it's deep and it's linked to place and, uh, you know, and tribe and identity. And um, and in the case of Liverpool, Liverpool is a city, I mean, like New York in some ways, maybe like Boston or Baltimore in other ways, where the centre of gravity is really around, say, working class culture, ordinary people and um and it's about, and also it's about uh, Liverpool people are meant to be funny and be able to sing a song. That's always a, a good thing. And that's why we got the Beatles and why they were funny, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. But there's lots. So it's it's very important to, you know, and it's also the, the, maybe the most important thing is that the um, Liverpool is uh, a football team. It's also, it's a place which is in a country, but not of a country so you know i you could say i'm english but i feel like my family is from liverpool and liverpool is just happens to be in england but it's not particularly english so my relationship to england and um the ruling class and boris johnson and the etonians and the house of windsor is at very at best kind of ambiguous uh, if not hostile so there are different ways of being from the country I'm from. So when we speak of philosophy, you know, yeah. in addition to trying to answer some of the, the big questions, is do you think it's also a way for us to come to understand ourselves in relationship to the world and others? Yes. Yeah. I think philosophy gives you, um, I mean, at its best, I mean, you know, this is uh, harvesting happiness. The, the end of philosophy for many of the ancient philosophers was happiness what they meant by that you know is perhaps less than you know less familiar that happiness the word in greek is eudaimonia which means uh, more like uh, blessedness or um actually the word in greek means well goddedness to be well with god in some whatever god might be whoever whoever god might be so the the, the goal of philosophy is, is, is happiness, and happiness is an experience of contemplation and contemplation of uh, the nature of uh, that which is, the nature of the substances of things. So philosophy promises at its most uh, uh, extreme a kind of godly bliss. And whether we think that's um, what we mean by happiness, I think is a, a good point. One more thing I wanted to say, because this is – it's another point which takes us back to our friends, the the Greeks, and it's a really important point for me anyway, is that the um, Sophocles, uh, the, the the dramatist uh, in one of his plays has this line, call no man happy until he is dead. Call no man happy mm. until he is dead. And this seems like an odd thing to say, but what he meant by that was that the one's happiness is not something that you can ever judge. Happiness is something which someone else uh, judges about you. So, and for the for the ancient Greeks, that meant that happiness consisted in the stories that were told about you after you'd 
after you'd popped off, right? And that's what the Greeks called glory. It's a lovely idea that, that your glory will consist in the stories that you that are told about you after your after you've gone. And so, in that sense, happiness is not uh, for the Greeks and in philosophy just a personal concern about how I feel. It's about, in a sense, how you're seen, how you act in the world, how other people see you, and what kind of, you know, what kind of legacy you might leave behind. And so these are, yeah, so philosophy at its best can promise a kind of godlike happiness. And um, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Oh, it does. I, I, I like the, the <laughs> word you use, well-goddedness for well-goddedness, eudaimonia. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but the Western world is in pursuit of hedonic happiness. Which is, is. which is um, not sustainable, not even real happiness. No, I mean, it means, I mean, it's, you know, philosophy is, um, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's the, there's a kind of thing that I do. I mean, I get, I get paid to think for a living. I'm an academic and there's a whole kind of career structure and uh, all of that stuff, which is, you know, I don't know how interesting that is even to me these days. But the, uh, in, if you go further back and think about what philosophers have been historically, it's much closer to um, the life of uh, a recluse or a, a monk or a contemplative or so, certainly someone who has moved away from material possessions and from you know things like wealth. It it requires a kind of asceticism a kind of ascesis of the of, of the self which is the kind of behavior we associate more with uh, religious people but philosophy has an, a strong element of that too and there are examples of you know like philosophers like wittgenstein who was from a uh, an assimilated uh, and very wealthy jewish family in vienna who once he got his um, you know family money just gave it all away just gave it all away to different people and tried to live as uh, as poorly as possible. And there is a kind of um, a sense in which, um, you know, if you are pursuing wealth and uh, you're concerned with, you know, day-to-day pleasures, I mean, that can certainly fill up one's time, whether it actually is fulfilling in terms of an overall existence, I think is a, you know, is, is a moot point. And one thing that the... I hope that the pandemic has done over the past year is it's allowed people to raise certain fundamental questions about uh, what they think is of value in their lives and to um, and to reassess that. So it's been a moment where we've been in an enforced period of contemplation, reflection and anxiety and fear too, but also reflection. So it's been a philosophical moment and I hope I hope that sticks around for a bit longer. Me too. Let's take a break, Mm -hmm. and then we'll come back and continue the conversation with Simon Critchley. To learn more about his work, please visit simoncritchley.org. On Twitter, you can find him at Critchley Update, and on Facebook, Simon Critchley's Pages of Dead Philosophers. The book we're Uh, talking about today is Bald, 35 Philosophical Shortcuts. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with Simon Critchley, we're talking philosophically about morality and things that matter. Simon, before we broke, you spoke about the importance and value of 
our year of contemplation, you know, imposed by the pandemic. And mm -hmm. and we began to talk about its value and in your hopes that this would continue. And I can say for myself and those around me that I too had a, a year of contemplative thinking and being and see how important being in that state is to not just happiness, but, but creating a life of meaning. And mm -hmm. I wanted to move forward, you know, piggybacking on that to talk a little bit about what's ailing our society and what's going right in our world right now. Mm -hmm. Sort of okay. both sides of the coin. I think that certainly for, for me, and when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I had a, a misspent youth would be one way of putting it. And I remember feeling an absolutely chronic anxiety. I didn't really have the word anxiety to describe it. And somehow around that time, I uh, also began to read some philosophical work. I read an essay, I remember, by Martin Heidegger, who's a philosopher that I've uh, done work on over the years. And he had this sentence where he said, anxiety reveals the nothing. Anxiety reveals the nothing. And without being able to say what that meant, I understood exactly what it meant. Right? The, my, the anxiety that I was feeling, the sense of uh, kind of vertigo, in a sense, yeah, vertigo, dizziness, was um, was about nothing in particular, that there was no particular thing in the world I was scared of, um, but the whole thing had induced a kind of dread in me. And it's, um, I think the pandemic has, um, has brought that back into much sharper focus, that people, in a sense, are scared of a virus, okay, and that's... Um, and that's something to be scared of. But I think more in, in a deeper level, what, what it's induced in a lot of people has been uh, a general anxiety about their whole, their whole being in the world, uh, who they are and, uh, and what matters to them. And that's stepping back from one's entanglement in, you know, work and travel and running around and exhausting ourselves with a lot of activities which perhaps seemed important and then suddenly they were ripped away last year and we were left kind of stranded with ourselves or with our with our families for company trying to figure things out and i think that's a really important moment it's not just a, it's not that it's um an experience of you know depression or sadness or melancholy that needs to be uh, medicated or uh, you know uh, solved as it were it should be used and, and worked with. So I guess what I think at my you know, deepest level is that that anxiety that we feel, that, that, that dread that we feel about and we felt over the last year is what actually makes possible our, our freedom, uh, our, our freedom as, as, as human beings and what we, can, what we can accord value to and what we can really think is important and what we can commit ourselves to. I think a lot of us have been forced to reassess that. And I think it's obviously there's a there are a whole series of political things connected with this that I don't think I even want to get into. But you know, we know what we've been through over the last year. It's been <laughs> it's been strange. <laughs> yeah, it's been strange strange and rough. But the but the importance of just stepping back and and reassessing and thinking things through rather than being endlessly kind of swept away by the busyness of life, I think is um that, that's philosophical activity. So I think that although people didn't choose it, they've, they've, they've become philosophers over the last year. What's that going to, what's that going to lead to? Well, um, I think it's going to, it's going to lead to a real sense of the importance of, you know, deep, deep bonds and deep relationships. I think certainly in my case, and, you know, uh, I think, I don't think I'm alone in this, that the, I've uh, I've not seen a lot of people over the year, but I've seen some people over the year, and those people I've seen of those those uh, friendships have deepened and um, become more more profound over the year, and more more trusting, and um, and we've seen each other in these kind of very exposed, vulnerable states, and that's um, that's that, that's very important because we're all 
we're all, you know, weak, you know, fragile creatures. Uh, and we can be wiped away with a virus. Human life is, is, is fragile, is vulnerable, and we're dependent on others. Yeah. But that's our strength. That's, that's what makes human life uh, worth living, dependence, vulnerability, weakness. It's not about um, individuality and strength and powering through. It's a, you know, it's about accepting that you're a a weak, dependent, reasonable, most of the time animal who's scared a lot of the time. And um, and that I think that puts us in some very good company historically. Actually, I think it's the way human beings have felt a lot of the time. Um, because there's been a lot of plague a lot of the time in, in history. So I think we, uh, we were living in a kind of um, counterfeit eternity, a counterfeit immortality um, a lot of the time uh, prior to the, the pandemic. And the pandemic has maybe woken us up. And also to enjoy things like, um, I mean, right now I'm, li- I'm, in, I'm in New York and I live in Brooklyn and I'm, I'm hearing birds singing. And I remember... You know, I'd lived, I've lived in this apartment for uh, nearly 10 years, and it was only really last year that I really began to listen to birdsong and migratory birds going up the East Coast, and, and they're, they're passing through again, and I'm listening to them. And there's something to be said for that, you know, just taking the time to appreciate a bird singing, you know, it's, it's singing, it's singing its, uh, its voice out early in the evening and it's to focus on those small pleasures and take the time uh that they require and not to not to rush all the time uh, what, what i hear you saying is that as life became maybe perhaps more small or insulated during the pandemic that it also became bigger and larger and mm-hmm. our and our we began to maybe understand our place in it a bit more <laughs> I think so. I mean, I think it did. I think it, it's, um, I think our scale shrunk to, you know, um, there were people who were living alone or people who were living in small family groups or whatever. But at the same time, the sense of the, the world uh, got bigger because everybody was in the same mess in different ways, doing different things, but in the same mess. And I think it also had, um, I, I think it did also have, you know, political consequences in the sense in which um, we ended up with um, we ended up with uh, Joe Biden as president. And what really what Joe Biden is really good at is grieving. He's a, he's yeah. a you know a griever in chief. I mean, whatever one thinks of Biden, and I you know I think a lot of things about Biden, a lot of good things about Biden, but he is empathetic he appreciates people's suffering and i think that's something that we've all gone through in the last the last year we we're co-dependent on each other we maybe you know if we're lucky we've got through we've got i've i've had i've had a vaccination i'm you know i have not been sick um but i'm also incredibly sensitive and touched by you know the suffering that's still going on. And I have, say, students in Brazil, some really good students in Brazil who've been stuck there for uh, since March last year. And it's um, it's not a great situation in Brazil. And no. um, and so and so you feel I think it's so. Uh, so I think there's a uh, the solitude and the, the withdrawal uh, have led to an increase in empathy, compassion and and a sense of, you know, we need to do some, we need to do decent things where possible because it is later than we think. Yes, it's later than we think. Thank you for saying that, you know. No. That's kind of powerful. And, you know, maybe the chief humanist in charge, <laughs> you yes. know, you're right, it's exactly what we needed. I mean, what was intolerable over the last year was just the the mismanagement of the situation here, and the just the ineptitude of uh, the response. There are certain there, there are certain times when uh, government and institutions serve very good purposes, right? The, you know, for something like a, a virus, we need 
we need scientific institutions to do the research to uh, we need pharmaceutical country co companies to make the, the vaccine we need distribution networks we need organization and all of that should hopefully go on you know behind our behind our backs it should just be the way in which a society functions and it felt in the united states last year uh, that that had all every every moment seemed to be you know uh a crisis, a dis, you know, some some um, outrage on social media and what, and it's just exhausting. And I think the other thing, which is, um, I think, is um, whether this is interesting or not, is the the feeling of fatigue, the feeling of uh, of, of tiredness that people have. And I I teach students and um, on Zoom, which is not great. And I really see their their fatigue, their exhaustion, and their. I mean, for someone like me as a teacher, it, Zoom is okay. You can kind of you know get away with it, but they're really losing out on the whole experience of being a student, being in a room with people, being then you know having chats and conversations with new people, and being excited by that, and then new friendships forming and intrigues and all those wonderful things that make human life uh, interesting. And there they are on their, you know, on the, uh, the little boxes, little stamps on their, uh, on, on, on a zoom screen and um, they're strangers to each other and, um, and I'm strangers to them. And we're kind of maintaining the illusion. This is, uh, this is fine, but it's really not. You yeah. need so in a sense that we've been so two things have happened in the last year. On the one hand, um, we've been we've realised the extraordinary power of you know the digital age and uh, the internet and blah blah blah, uh, and uh, and that's made amazing things possible. Um, on the other hand, we're now really, really, very clearly aware of the limitations of that and the huge importance there is on actually being in a room or in a space with another human being and being able to read their, read their cues, all that nonverbal stuff, which is really hard to do when you're uh, pulled out on your own and, um, you know, and trying to look at a computer screen. And so, oh, and the other last thing I want to say about this, which I think is the, the thing that I guess worries me most is that I did one of the things that I wrote about um, in previous years, and then I did some more work on this um, last year, it was on suicide. It's not a pleasant topic, but it's an important yeah. topic. And um, and um, when you look at the literature on suicide, like the you know the proper you know scientific literature on suicide. Um, it is clear that the um, suicide rates always increase in the spring. It's when things are getting better that people finally give up and lose heart. So in a sense, what we have to focus on right now is that the pandemic is, at least for us in our, you know, the privileged you know, United States, is beginning, beginning, beginning to, to pass. But the hangover of that, uh, the hangover of that in terms of the effects of the last year on how we feel about everything uh, are going to be with us for a long time. And that should really be um, our focus. And um, a lot of people, uh, and so as things get better, this is, this, is, this is what I'm trying to say, as things get better objectively in relationship to, say, mortality rates and virus numbers, things are going to get better maybe worse when it comes to uh, mental health problems and issues and things like that. And we have to be very attentive to that in the next, the next months and years, I think, particularly on, uh, particularly on the young. I agree. And I want to urge our listeners to pick up a copy of Bald, 35 Philosophical Shortcuts, and also have a look at the last essay, number 35, Our Fear, Our Trembling, Our Strength, by my guest today, Simon Critchley. Thanks, Simon. This has been such a great conversation, and I really uh, love your work and appreciate the angle from which you come. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. It's been it's been great fun. Yeah, and, um, really good uh, fun. Come back anytime. Hang out with me. <laughs> yeah, sure. Whenever you want. All right, I'm here. We'll, we'll do it. To learn right. more, please visit simoncritchley.org on Twitter at Critchley Update and on Facebook, Simon Critchley's page of dead philosophers. 
Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, and on behalf of my guests, Alan Buchanan and Simon Critchley, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day, and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere. From the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUURadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.